It's great to see all of your beautiful faces. For those of you that don't know, we, uh, we planted here in St. Charles for a reason four and a half years ago. That reason keeps becoming more clear. Uh, we have a huge heart for the city. Don't believe that we're here so that people can come into our brick building. Or rather, we're here to serve the city, to love it, um, to show the city the true love of Christ and do whatever it takes to do that. And today was a day uh, that I'm humbled to stand before you and share a couple things within that. Um, some of you all have heard, but we're uh, probably moving down to Main Street, which is the, the, uh, the heart of our city, St. Charles. Uh, many of you know where Main Street is. It's my favorite place in the world. And uh, last night, uh, all of the zoning passed through, uh, allowing the first church um, to be down on Main Street in many, many years. And uh, one step forward uh, in, in us being down in the heart of St. Charles. Unbelievable stuff. And the second thing is this. Um, we've been working very closely with community development. And uh, this weekend alone, we're going to be able to help seven families, three of which we're building wheelchair ramps for. And unbelievable stuff is happening. And uh, today, I... I've been building a relationship with uh, the leader of community development, and um, today she informed me that community development is giving We Love St. Charles $15,000 between now and the end of the year to help the hurting and the poor and the, yeah. Um, and not just that, but uh, we also found out today that there's um, thousands of dollars more uh, for us that is going to be there to continue to help our pursuit of single moms here in the city. And so I stand before you a humbled man um, and uh, really desiring to um, continue to encourage you all that we are here to be trained as missionaries, uh, to be sent out to this city to love it. And I know not all of you live here, and that's fine. In all of your own missional contexts, in your neighborhood, your dorm room, wherever it is that you reside, praise God for the opportunity to be on mission Praise God that we get to live this life with great purpose and we don't have to folly around like morons, but rather we have this tremendous gospel that we get to represent. You see what I'm saying, church? And so the city now is coming behind us to the fullest measure so that we can accomplish this vision that we started last October. And I don't know about you, um, some visions that you have, you kind of you see a, a vision of it and you hope that it will one day get there. I don't know that I imagine that that 10 months in we would have helped 230 families and that the city would be writing checks to us because of our partnership. And so all I say is praise God. When I was in college, the most confusing day for me was signing up for classes. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like you, you look at that book the first time and there's, it's like the class names, first of all, it's like Western civilization in a Western civilized world. You know, it's like what does that even mean? And basket weaving and figure skating for, you know, football, I mean, just crazy names. And then all the number, the numerical system is wild too. It's like 103B, like I don't even know what that is. And then you turn the page and there's 400 numbers. Like no one ever explained this to me. I don't know if you're getting ready to sign up for classes, what you learn later is a 100 level class, though they don't tell you at first, is more general and more basic. And that a 400 level class is a little bit more condensed, a little bit more focused and much more difficult, right? They also don't tell you not to sign up for an 8 a.m., four-day-a-week class your first semester, which I did, right? Psychology, no less, okay? They don't tell you these things. I've been thinking a lot about um, that system as we've been wrestling with what it truly means to be a disciple. 
And I've realized this. The things that we've been wrestling with is Christianity 101. The most general, basic teachings of Christ are the things that we've been wrestling with in the understanding of what true biblical discipleship is and also as we've been teaching 1 Peter. It's the baseline, the basics. Unfortunately, in most of our contexts, it isn't that. If you are really discipling someone, you're, you're considered someone who is like who is a novice, who is up at the 600 level, who's in the master's program, getting a PhD in Christianity, if you're truly living like Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to break that mentality. I'm ready to understand the basics of what following Jesus is and starting to do those as the church. And then maybe when we can implement those and live those and learn those, then as we grow deeper in the faith, God will reveal more and we'll be stronger in him. Are you with me, church? And so I want to encourage you guys, even tonight, in these three verses that we'll look at, there, it's Christianity 101, all three verses, the basics of Christianity. In most of my context, though, these verses are far off. They're for the more advanced. But let me tell you this, these passages tonight aren't for the advanced. They're for every believer. And so I want to invite you with great anticipation to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you've been journeying with us, you know that we've been in 1 Peter for a while, uh, two more months the end is in sight. Uh, late August is when we'll be done with First Peter, uh, putting us almost right at a year. I want to read the passages that we studied last week in First Peter 4, just to give us some context. We began in uh, verse 4 of First Peter 4, and it said this, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they, and they malign you, and they, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You will remember, my friends, that Peter is writing to a hostile world, to a bunch of folks that have been persecuted, maligned, abused for the sake of the gospel. And so he keeps encouraging them on how it is that they are to live in a dangerous, hostile situation. And last week we focused on they will be surprised when you make the transition from feeding from the faucet of flesh to living for the gospel, this old crowd, this old group, they won't get it. And we don't need to spend our existence trying to help them understand amidst the abuse. Rather, we reflect and live the gospel, communicate it when we can in the hopes that God will save them. And then we come to these three amazing Verses, beginning in verse 7. Check this out. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of what? Come on. Of your prayers. Let's deal with this first phrase first. The end of all things is at hand. What does Peter mean here? The end of all things is at hand. Well, the word end implies consummation. Implies Final implies fruition. So the end, the consummation, the fruition of things is at hand. There's only one Greek word used in this context to describe hand, and it's engizo. And engizo means this, it's coming nearer. So the end, the consummation of all things is coming nearer. Well, what does this mean? Some say that this means that Peter's alluding to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. 
problem is Peter died in 65 or so A.D., the destruction of the temple. Anyone? 70 A.D., okay? So for Peter to be alluding to this, especially because the word end here implies not temporal, but rather long-lasting effects, unlikely. Some also get confused because they're like, from Jesus on, everyone keeps saying the end is near, the end is near, the hour is coming, it's going to happen like a thief in the night. So why is it that it hasn't happened? I don't believe that Peter's alluding to the fact that the end of all things is within a couple of years. He doesn't know. And so he says an urgent statement in desperate times, listen, to evoke awareness. Are you with me? The end, the fruition, the consummation of all things is at hand. So what does he really mean? Everything has happened minus one in the plan of redemption. God creates Sin comes into the world, Genesis 3. God begins his covenant with the Israelite nation in Genesis 12. The Israelites showing that people without a mediator cannot follow God. They will fail. Jesus comes as the mediator, lives perfectly, dies on a cross. The perfect Passover lamb's blood in Christ reveals the forgiveness of sins. He's raised from the third day, reveals himself to his disciples, and Peter and you and I here await the minus one, the second coming of Christ, the return of God Almighty. And let me encourage you with, it is coming and it is happening. And I'm so confused with how the world is trying to wrestle with this. I'm pretty sure in the movies that New York City and Washington, D.C. have been destroyed like a million times in these movies, right? Every scene of the end times in the movies, it always shows the White House, right? And some picture of New York and things crumbling. Our culture uh, deals with it this way. Um, You guys ever heard by the name of a man, Al Gore? Have you ever heard of him? Um, he He was really big into this thing called global warming. And I don't understand it at all, except that I think he's saying that the globe is going to get warmer. But, um, but, but the, whole, the whole premise is uh, we must begin to recycle and go green, because if not, the world is going to end. And, and I'm not saying anything against recycling. In fact, I, I think it's good, right? So I'm not negating your, you know, your go green shirts, Sarah, right? All I'm saying, all I'm saying is that the way the world deals with the concept of the end of the world, listen, is that we need to save the world in the hopes of saving ourselves. Well, the difference in the church is we don't say recycle so the world will be saved. We say repent or perish. We say Christ is coming back. Recycling will do nothing. Repentance will do everything through the blood of Christ. You see the difference. The question is that we have to ask ourselves is are we readying ourselves for the fact that the return of Christ is imminent. It's coming. It will happen. The day and the hour is unknown. And what Peter desires is he wants to show his readers some basic truths that they can claim to, hold on to, cling to in this period of desperation. So he says the end, the fruition, the consummation is coming nearer. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. The word self-controlled, listen, this, guys, this gets so beautiful so quick. The word self-controlled means sane. Be self-controlled. Sane. Focused. Let me ask you this. How many of you guys have ever been around, uh, no need to raise your hand, have been around one of your friends when they were severely injured? Okay? 
You saw a broken bone. You saw a tibia pop out of its skin. You saw, you know, a a broken tooth that got bloody, whatever it is. And I want to ask you guys this question. In that moment or other moments, are you the one that stays calm, collected, focused, or are you the person that hits the red button of death, the panic button? You know what I'm saying? Are you the person that's like, everything's going to be all right, blood's gushing everywhere, but it's cool, wrap it up, tape it up, we go to the hospital, 911, you're staying calm and collected, or are you the person that's just like freaking out, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, I don't know what to do, Not, you know, you're calling 911, and, and they're trying to calm you down, your friend's over here, like leg misplaced, right? Which, which person are you? Now, this is going to be critical in our understanding of this verse. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, it's coming to fruition, Be self-controlled, be sane, be calm. Then he says this, be sober-minded. And the literal definition of sober-minded here is grounded. Be clear-minded, grounded, focused, not panicked. Why? For what? For the sake of what? Your prayers. Now this verse brings to light a deep truth in the scripture. And if you can understand this church, then I really believe you can leave here changed. Many of your prayer life is panic mode. No prayer, no prayer, no prayer. Grandma gets cancer. Pray, 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 pray. Cancer, either she passes away or it leaves. No prayer, no prayer, no prayer. Many of you live in a panicked state of prayer. You seek the Lord, you pray, you plead in moments of complete and utter panic. There is a difference, listen, there's a difference between urgency and panic. Peter is trying to encourage his readers on how to live in urgent, desperate times. And what he says is, you need to be clear-minded. You need to be focused You need to be ready to live missionally at any given point. And so the prayer rhythm that that should represent is pray, 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 pray. Catastrophe. Pray, pray, pray. All of the circumstances and the things that happen in our life don't drive our prayer rhythm. Our prayer rhythm drives those then these just become a piece of our prayer rhythm. You see what he's saying here? This is brilliant, and this is one of the only places in Scripture we get a clear, a clear vision of this. Be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that your prayer rhythm is so natural that when all craziness breaks out and chaos begins, then those things become a piece of your prayer rhythm. You don't hit the red prayer button of death and turn it into panic mode. Can I ask you something? Does that seem like a relationship to you? If we only plead to the Father in panic mode, does that seem like relationship? To me, that just seems like God is an option. We're reaching for something, and God might be one of them, and so we better pray. That's why the Scripture says all soldiers pray. They're reaching for some kind of hope, right? God is an option. God's not really God. When God is truly God, when he's eternal God, when he's faithful God, then our prayer rhythm through a clear mind, though desperate times, pray, 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 pray. My wife and I are we're struggling financially. Pray, pray, pray. What happens in life 
doesn't drive our prayer life. Rather, our prayer, the prayer rhythm in life just mesh beautifully. That will not happen for you with an unfocused, distorted, unsobered mind. This is Christianity 101. I want to share something with you in the hopes that this affects us differently. Because many of you know that one of my greatest passions in life is prayer. I desire for our church to be a church of prayer. I desire for myself, for my kids to see me as a man of prayer. Um, I fail often, and um, I struggle getting my kids to understand that, and it frustrates me when Avery doesn't want to pray, to be honest, and it shouldn't. She's three and a half, for heaven's sakes, right? But we'll be going to bed, and I'll be like, so Avery, you want to pray tonight? Are you ready to say propitiation in your prayers? You know what I'm saying? And... Um, and she'll be like, Daddy, can you just pray? But the other day, I was, I was sitting downstairs in the basement. And I wasn't in like a, I wasn't like on my knees with my hands in the air. But I had my eyes closed and I was praying. And Avery came up and it was so awesome because I sat there and I was just like, and she walked up and I didn't see her coming in the room. And she said, Dad, she walked up and she kind of scared me. And she said, Daddy, what are you doing? And I, I was able to say genuinely, honey, I'm, I'm praying right now. Would you like to, would you like to pray with me? No, that's okay. You know, so it was, it, was, it was great up until that point. But but I desire us to get there. I desire us to be a body that pleads. And so I just want to share this with you in the hopes that, that we'll understand this better. It is such a blessing that God gives us to be able to communicate with him. It's an absolute blessing that he doesn't just have to be an option in moments of panic, but rather because of our natural communication, we get to wrestle with the creator of the universe through our most difficult and joyous times of life. That is what it means to be clear-minded and self-controlled in moments of complete hostility. Are you with me, church? What I love here is he now shows the practical application of this in verse 8. Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, right? A lot of bumper stickers here, a lot of keychains, a lot of t-shirts. Many of you grew up in the church. This verse is very familiar. Let's break it down. The first phrase, above all, uh, pretty horrible worship song, um, but beyond that, it's a... Um, it's a concept that reveals the power of God's love in the lives of the disciples. Peter, as you know, was a disciple of Christ. He was one of the inner three. He was around Jesus at the transfiguration. His feet were washed by the Christ. He was at the communion table. He saw the miracles, heard the teachings. Their relationship was incredibly strong, right? Peter was there when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says the word, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then what else did Jesus say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't you love here? Above all. I'm not Captain Obvious, but above all means above everything, right? It's higher and it's more important than everything else. The teachings of Jesus, years and years and years and years after Christ was resurrected, are still resonating deeply in the heart of the Christian writers, so much so that Peter is still articulating, above all, love one another 
earnestly. Now, the word earnestly is powerful. It means fervently. It means actively. Uh, Let me give you an example. The love that is active is a love that is pursuing. In other words, if for a month's time I just sit on the couch and my wife comes in daily and I speak gently to her and kindly to her, once in a while ask her for a frozen pizza, her and I converse, she comes in after day three, she starts to say, oh, hey Mark, you ever going to get off the couch? And, and I very kindly, very encouragingly, no babe, I'm just going to sit here, you know, you go ahead and do your thing. And the next day comes and I just can very gently, very kindly, it doesn't take long for her to get the sense that there is not a reciprocating, pursuing love. Even though I'm kind and gentle and I wear a sweet little face, there is a sense that there, there's some distance here in what Mark's saying and how he's communicating it and what he's doing with me. To love one another earnestly is to pursue it, to seek it out with me and my wife, for me to show her that I love her, it's me daily, actively doing it. It's not reacting to her. It's activating it. It's pursuing her. It's revealing that love. For us, and in this case, to love the Christian brethren, it's an active love. It's a pursuing love. It's a eyes are open and them looking for opportunities. Because what was Peter's context? The church is going through chaos. What does Peter say amidst it? When you are going through utter death and friends of yours are being persecuted, maligned, and abused, you must hang together. You must really be the body of Christ. There's enough chaos out there. Maybe when we're together, at least, there's some semblance of love and encouragement pursuing. Well, what's the revelation of it? That love is 100% revealed in Christ. Listen. Leaves the glory of the Father, pursues his kids, lives perfectly amongst them, and dies. The example of Christ is the epitome of pursuing fervent after you love. And that's the kind of love here that Peter's talking about. I know we're not at a wedding. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and quote 1 Corinthians 13. Is everyone okay with that? Do I need to put on a suit to do this? Are we cool? Right? If you've been to any, you know, if you've been to more than two weddings, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13. Nothing against it that's in the Scripture, so I don't want to mistake it. But in 1 Corinthians 13, as Paul's describing, defining love, here's what he says. It's patient, right? It's kind. Doesn't envy, doesn't boast. Keeps no record of what? Keeps no record of wrongs. Peter here is quoting Proverbs 10, 12. That though there, are, there, though there is much strife, love, this fervent, persistent, pursuing, consistent love, covers somehow strangely a multitude of sins. Have you ever not called a friend back, any of you? Anyone? Okay, so me and Krista. Um, I had a friend of mine, close friend, who last October really started pursuing me hardcore. He was trying to show that pursuant, consistent love. And um, though I called him back one out of 10 or so, and texted back one out of 15, I was a horrible friend. I did a bad job. I won't even begin to give the excuses. It clearly was affecting him more than it was me. 
And one night I was taking Avery and Dawson to the mills because that's where we do it. You know what I'm saying? The mills, you can ride that train around the mall. Have you been there? It's not on the track anymore. It just goes around the mall. It's super cool, really expensive. Anyway, <laughs> my friend calls me, and, uh, and, and I answer. And I'm like, hey, bro, so incredible to talk to you. Like, man, it's been forever, hasn't it? And he just, he just begins to um, share some things with me. Uh, Mark, um, I'm really hurt. Like, I just had a new baby, and though you texted me congratulations, maybe it would have been more appropriate that you called me. And, and I know that you've called me like one time, but I've called you like 30. I'm getting the sense, I'm getting the sense in the picture that you really don't care. Well, I was extremely humbled, obviously. Avery and Dawson are in the back. I'm, I'm even like tearing up, like I'm broken over this. I'm like, man, I, I don't normally like do this in relationships. But listen, here's the beautiful thing. Because my brother was fervently pursuing and loving me, I asked for forgiveness, apologized, and the rest of the conversation was beautiful. Love covers over a multitude of sins. The concept is, in believers, it's quick to grace and slow to judgment. That's the beauty of consistent pursuing deep love amongst the body of Christ, is we have the opportunity to reflect the grace of Christ by being quick to extend grace and mercy and slow to judge. Where do you find yourself in this place? Quicker to judge, quicker to give grace. Is it possible that the reason this is a little bit jaded is that you're pursuing love, is that you sit back, for instance, after the church gathering, and you're waiting for folks to come talk to you. Your idea of love is who has a conversation with you, who pursues you, who asks you questions, who seems interested in your new kicks, right? That for you is pursuing love. And I, I just want to set this picture for you in the hopes that eventually it takes root. There are, of course, non-believers here, and it's great. Welcome. It's great to have you here. But for the, for the believers, those who say that Jesus is their king, after this is over, when the body of Christ is together, what does it look like for everyone to pursue one another in that deep, pursuing, consistent, persistent love. You see what I'm saying? It's completely different. And then what happens in the church as our love for one another grows and deepens is grace abounds because it has to, because it reflects Christ. And so then some of the petty things that become drama in the church, they are quickly forgiven and we together move on, right? That's the power of the blood of Christ. And so in Christianity 101, I know this seems deep, that people would actually pursue one another and engage in conversation and act interested and really be genuine in love. This is the basic of Christianity. This is what Christ said is the greatest commandment, to love one another for you tonight. Who is it that is on your heart just tonight that you need to pursue in love and encouragement Carrying some burdens, blessing someone, praying for someone. Who tonight do you just need to seek out and pursue in love? Peter says that that kind of love covers over a multitude of sins like it did with my brother on the phone. And that the world can never taste. Can we just sit on that for a moment? 
the world can never taste that love. And that's why the world spends their time in drama. And we get to experience forgiveness. Unbelievable. Verse 9, check this out. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> uh, this, this is a funny verse to me. Hospitality is literally generous. Show generosity to one another without grumbling. Now, the word grumbling here implies an inward debate. So what he's saying is show hospitality without inwardly being angry. Oh, you have the smiling face? Come on in. Come on in here to the house. It's great to have you. And inside you're like, I just want to kick your dog. You know what I'm saying? That's not hospitality. I'm not a big dog fan. Sorry, right? Listen, understand the context. Remember how verse 1 started in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1? To the elect exiles of the dispersion. The Christians are scattered through Asia Minor. They're being persecuted. They need a home. In fact, in ancient uh, Greek culture, inns were considered dirty. It was more respectable to stay with people, to be hospitable. So there were missionaries traveling around. So Peter's saying, welcome them in for heaven's sakes, right? There were people being persecuted. They were homeless because of that persecution. Their friends or family had been killed. Welcome them in. Bring them in. Open your home to them. This is what it reveals to show the gospel of Christ. Be hospitable. We have two big battles, you and I. The first is this. Many of you grew up where your parents hated having people over. Okay? Some of you guys grew up, and, and literally the people in your house were you and your family, period. They didn't want people over. When you brought friends over, it got awkward, right? And, and, and for many of you, there's a huge battle there because you, you don't even know what that looks like. It wasn't modeled for you. I was blessed to have a mother that is literally, and some of you guys have met her, one of the most hospitable people in God's creation. My friends would come over, and we would, like for two of us, there would be eight frozen pizzas, crisper french fries. You guys know what I'm talking about, those Oralee? All right, uh, what's the company? Anyway, those crisper fries, that, which are money, there'd be a chocolate sheet cake in the oven. I mean, my, my mom would just lavish food and love and encouragement. And so I grew up in this house where if friends are coming over, it's just like the more the merrier. Like, let's bring them in. Let's love them. So we have that battle. Some of you guys didn't grow up in that. Our second battle is this. is to show hospitality is to invite people into your realm of existence, which means complete selfless living. So we battle our background and we battle our selfishness because when you show hospitality, you're giving up your time, you're inviting people into your most intimate context, your home, where you live, where you reside, where you sleep, and probably they're eating your food, right? And so you're inviting people into the most selfless piece of your opportunity to show hospitable, to show hospitality rather, your home, right? And you're like, well, I live in a dorm. Okay, so be it, right? Now, many of you have a litany of excuses as well. If you were to ask yourself right now, how many Christian brothers and sisters, let alone non-Christians, have you had in your home? Some of you have just reclused. And I want to ask why. Is it, is it because you're embarrassed of your conditions? Is that a real, probable possibility? That may be the case in some, in some cases, 
But real Christian brothers and sisters, we just want to hang together. When I go to people's house, I'm not looking around the corner to see if there's dirty, dirty towels in the bathroom. I'm just thankful to see my Christian brothers and sisters. I'm thankful to be invited into the intimacy of their home, right? So some of you guys maybe are embarrassed about your conditions. Others of you guys hate driving conversation. And so the thought of having people over, the implication is you're going to guide the night. You're not just both going to sit there and be like, so how's the meatballs, right? Like, there's going to be some conversation, and it's probably going to be you initiating it. Some of you think you're hospitable because you invite people over, and then they come over to your house, and they're having to do the entertaining. They come over to your house, and they're like waiting for you to say something, and you're not. You're not initiating, acting like you care about them at all, and so they have to sit back and be like, so you want to play catchphrase? Like, I don't know. Let's do something here, right? You haven't prepared a meal. You're fixing it as they go. It's mac and cheese, nothing against it, right? Whatever it is, hospitality is one of the greatest forms of showing one another, Christian brothers and sisters, the true power of Christ. One of the reasons I love Brian and Debbie Short, who own the El Shaddai Ranch, is those are two of the most hospitable people in the world. They got however many acres, and they just invite whoever over to all of their acreage. And when they leave, when the church leaves the big pavilion out there, guess who picks it up? They do. They don't hire a dog to eat it. They pick it up. They clean it up. That's hospitality. And it shows the power of Christ. This is Christianity 101, hospitality. It's the basic that you would invite people into your realm of existence. Let me show you the powerful thing here. It encompasses the true measure of discipleship. Why? Discipleship is open access. And your lack of hospitality will ultimately affect your ability to disciple because you close up and don't give anyone access to watch you as together you follow Christ. As we learned last week, watching to grow in discipleship. The disciples watched Jesus. They were given access into their life to grow. And when people come over to my wife and I's house, we do, our, we do our kids' Bible stories. We do our family worship time right there. When people come over in our house, we don't change. They live life with us. They sit down. We engage them. We entertain them. Except last night when some friends brought Chinese. Amazing. Thank you. Right? Most times we're cooking, our, we're cooking the food. Right? You know how awesome Heidi is at cooking dessert. That's the beauty of hospitality. Now, I want to share something with you as we close this up. Because we read these three verses, okay? The power of clear-minded prayer, loving one another earnestly, and showing hospitality. And there may be the sense of like, okay, that's, those are three nice verses. Like you, you wrap that up nice. You taught the intricacies of it. But what does it mean? Can I share a story with you guys? Jesus in... Jesus shared this, shall we? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Classic lawyer. Saying, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, he told the lawyer, and you will live. Now listen to this. You're going to hear a story that maybe some of you have heard before. But the ending, the ending is something I've never noticed until now. Look at this. But he said, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is what? Who's my neighbor? Listen. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest, mind you, So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw this beaten, bloody man, passed by on the other side. Listen. But a Samaritan, which if you understand the context of Jews and Samaritans, they're not besties by any stretch. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now listen, you need to hear tonight of anything. You need to hear these three verses. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus asks the lawyer. And the lawyer says this, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, listen, Jesus says, now you go and do likewise. Now, I have preached this story, the Good Samaritan, all my life. It's classic. Okay? Beautiful story. Man beaten on the road, two people who you would expect come by. They walk on by. But the one who you would least expect, that one stops. That one pours out a pursuing love, an overemphasizing love. And not just that, he takes him to an end and says, whatever happens. And then what does Jesus say? Do you get this? What does Jesus say? Now you go and do what? Live this, he says. Now you go and live this. You go and you live this pursuing love with a hospitable heart. And by doing so, what is he connecting it with? The greatest commandment. You will live like Jesus by living this way, by embodying the mission of Christ, which is love, pursuit, consistent hospitality. That's the life of Christ. You go and do likewise, Jesus says. And so prayer to life plays this integral role, and here's how. When we're clear-minded, focused, not hitting the panic button, but rather just in natural prayer rhythm, we naturally plead for opportunities to love and to be hospitable. And that is the prayer 
that God will always answer because he said, go and do likewise. Do you see? And so a clear mind, a clear heart, self-control, no panic, resting on the grace of God for all things, no matter what circumstance, that believer, that believer with a clear prayer as they plead for opportunities to love and be hospitable, they will be granted them. The opportunities will be given. It's promised. When you pray the will of God, First John says, he will answer and he will hear. Church, what I'm saying tonight is this. What is consuming your mind that's causing you to hit this panic button? You're not resting and trusting in his grace. You're worried. You're fearful. You're sitting there. All these decisions weighing on you and you're just panic praying. What of those things tonight just need to be thrown to the side so that you can sit for a few brief moments and just say, God, give me opportunities to live like you. And that prayer, I guarantee you, will be answered. That's Christianity 101. That's people who are on mission. And so church tonight, I invite you into that response. What has been hitting the panic button in your life now? And what can you tonight, as you sit in your pew, what can you in these moments just let go of so you can begin to plead, God, give me opportunities to live like you. Go and do likewise. So let's sit in an attitude of prayer.